We are turning in our Bibles today to Psalm 99, and as you're turning there, I'd love for you to take a look at what appears on the screen, because what we are doing now is allowing for this passage to be seen in relationship to other passages. This is part of a nine-psalm arrangement, whereby you will find that these psalms are such that the pinnacle is Psalm 96, and these are known as royal psalms. And this is known in the Bible or among theologians as the royal pyramid, by which they're all fit together, and by which once you've moved beyond the pinnacle of Psalm 96, you begin a descent towards Psalm 100, where in Psalm 100 you find that the Lord is inviting one and all to enter to the gates with thanksgiving and to the courts with praise. And so out of all this, then, what we see is where this psalm is now positioned in relationship to all the other royal psalms. Now, Psalm 99 has been known in many ways as the holiness psalm. It's the psalm where, divided into three stanzas, each stanza highlights the holiness of God and so we want to understand how this relates to the way in which we go about our worship experience. So if you found your way to Psalm 99, I'd love to begin reading verse 1 and take it down to verse 9 with you. And here now we read, The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. See how that first stanza ends? You're on to your second stanza. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Now your third stanza. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. And in the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. And so now you see holiness in triplicate form, and this helps us to understand where we're going this morning in wedding together the idea of the holiness of God and the majesty of God in these verses as we look to our Lord in prayer. Our Father, as we do so, we're praising you and we're thanking you for being the sovereign God, the God who is over all. 
You are the one who reigns supreme. The ultimate example of that is raising Jesus Christ from the grave. What we want to do, Father, is to be able to worship you in such a way that as the psalmist has challenged us, we exalt you, we lift up our praise to you, we worship you, you, the one who's holy. So, Father, these moments together are significant. Whether it be right now in person or those joining online during this hour and subsequent hours or days, we're asking that you speak at our point of need, but lift our hearts, Father, above and beyond our circumstances and focus, I pray, upon the one who reigns above. Warm these hearts, engage these minds, and shape these wills. As again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. I'm praying these things again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. We've made our way, let's say, to Pennsylvania in general, and Gettysburg in particular. And we're walking the grounds. Abraham Lincoln declared the Civil War battlefield in Pennsylvania to be, quote-unquote, hallowed ground. You might be with your tour guide at this point as the tour guide is giving you some perspectives on what has occurred there as you make your way around places such as Cemetery Ridge, Little Round Top. They would be set apart, no longer ordinary, common places, but one with special significance for special commemoration. And when people would gather together and walk those grounds, hopefully they leave differently than when they came, they realized that there were those that were willing to lay down their lives for the sake of the Union's oneness, for our freedom. In Lincoln's mind, the battlefield would be holy ground, a place set apart. When you and I are exploring these verses, we, in essence, are making our way into holy ground. These verses are set apart. I want you to see this morning how majesty and holiness are wedded together in the throne room of God. Only one time in all of the Bible is an attribute of God elevated to what is known as the third degree. Nowhere are you going to find in the Bible that God is love, love, love. Nowhere in the Bible will you find God described as power, power, power. Nowhere in the Bible are you going to find any description of God being merciful, merciful, merciful. The only distinctive and triplicate form found in the Bible is where and when God is referred to as holy, Holy, holy. There is something of significance about that. Everything and all things pertain to who God is and what God does has got to be understood in relationship to God's holiness. 
Holiness carries with the idea to be set apart, to be distinguished, where the sinless one is distinguished from the sinful ones, by which the Creator is distinguished from His creation. The creation is not holy, holy, holy. The Creator is holy, holy, holy. And so what we want to do now is to ask ourselves some serious questions. If, in fact, in triplicate form, God is emphasizing his distinctiveness, and there is a gulf between the creator and the creation, how will this gulf be bridged? And what does this psalm have to say about the bridging whereby the sinfulness of humanity and the sinlessness, the holiness of God, can find a meeting place whereby we can experience oneness with God. And that's what this psalm helps us to understand. So I want to now explore these three stanzas of what we'll call holiness with you this morning and to understand how this impacts directly the way in which we go about experiencing and offering our worship to our Lord and to our Savior, and Jesus Christ. Now, first of all, I want you to notice in this first stanza, in one through three, that as you and I, as we worship our Lord, who reigns over all, we're going to begin by noting the name here, describing our holy, our holy King. You pick it up in verse 1, and it reads, The Lord reigns. And now for the fourth time in this royal pyramid from Psalm 92 through Psalm 100, the Hebrew word, the phrase is Yahweh Melech, which carries with the idea the Lord reigns or the Lord is king. What I want to be able to say in this election cycle we find ourselves now in is that we live in a global monarchy We do not vote God into office. We do not vote for God. Rather, we submit our lives to God. And so now, the vote is his. The Lord reigns. This is a global monarchy being described here, Yahweh Melach, in this opening stanza. As a result of knowing that, that he has uppercase authority, and all other leaders through all other times have what you and I might describe as lowercase authority, then is it any wonder the next phrase stands out, let the peoples, let the peoples tremble. Now, when we make our way eventually entering into the Christmas season, into the story of Bethlehem, you and I are told that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Judea, in the days of Herod, the king, isn't that interesting? Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? 
For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. We are told that when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. Now, time and time again, what you find throughout the scriptures is that when Yahweh Melech, when the Lord is king, is truly understood by the peoples, believers and unbelievers, groups such as the Philistines, as well as the Israelites, the people, in fact, tremble. He, on the other hand, sits enthroned. But notice where he is seated and what he is surrounded by. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Now, you ask yourself the question, where have I come across those folks before? Well, now, you're going to have to make your way back in your Bible to the opening chapters of Genesis. Humanity has sinned against God. And so what the Lord has done in Genesis chapter 3 is to send uh, Adam Eve out from the garden to work the ground from which they were taken, drove out the man at the east side of the garden of Eden, and he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to God Get this, the way to the tree of life. Now notice the abridgment when Jesus described himself as the way of life, the way. So now what you will find here in that opening section of all of history is that the cherubim then serve as a means of protecting the holiness of God from the sinfulness of humanity and we're asking, how do we bridge this gap? The cherubim are also described later on. In fact, if you were to make your way to 1 Samuel 6, where David gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. David rose went all, with all the people who were with him brought up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim, you see. So now, they are the protectors of holiness. They are the transporters of holiness. Because in Ezekiel 10, you will see that when the glory of God is being removed from the temple due to the rebellion of the people against God's glory, it's the cherubim that are associated with the cart by which the glory of God, in essence, is being escorted out of the temple. They are associated with the holiness of God. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. Now, as we've noted even last week, when you and I explore the passages of the crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. In the crucifixion of Christ, there was an earthquake. With the resurrection of Christ, there was an earthquake. 
seismic statements being made with regard to the fact that this, in fact, is the king, the one who had that inscription over his head. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake, and so you have that dual quake occurring, bookending the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, seizing the attention of the populace, reminding them that this is a global monarchy, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, as the psalmist would have put it in Psalm 24, verse 1, you make your way to verse to verse 2. The Lord is great in Zion. He's exalted over all the peoples. That means Jews and Gentiles alike. Let them praise you. Praise your great and awesome name. Now bear in mind then, when you get to that name, once again, you started with the name. The Lord reigns. Yahweh Melech. This is the great I Am. And so as we recount again and again, when Moses was confronted with the burning bush, the one who reigns informed him, tell them, I am sent you. He's not the great past tense. He's not the great future tense. He's the great I am. When that is understood, whether it be people corporately or the earth in all matters globally, there is to be this sense of a trembling. There is to be this sense of response and reaction as to who God is, what God has done. You're being confronted with the holiness of God. Roland Bainton, in his volume, Here I Stand, describing how Luther was reaching a point of conviction regarding what it means to be saved by grace through faith, was offering communion but had not yet reached that point of having been justified by faith. Luther raised the chalice and then called out, We offer unto thee the living, the true, eternal God, but then paused. He would say, At these words I was utterly stupefied and terror-stricken. I thought to myself, with what tongue shall I address such majesty? Seeing that all men ought to tremble in the presence of even an earthly prince, who am I that I should lift up mine eyes, raise my hands to the sovereign majesty? The angels surround him at his nod, the earth trembles. R.C. Sproul tells the story of a time years ago when one of the leaving golfers on the professional tour was invited to play in a foursome with then-President Gerald Ford, Jack Nicklaus, Billy Graham. 
We're told that the golfer was especially in awe of playing with Ford and Graham. He had played frequently with Nicholas before. We're told that after the first round of golf was finished, one of the pros came up to the golfer and asked, Hey, what was it like playing with the president and with Billy Graham? We're told that the pro unleashed a torrent of cursing in a disgusted manner said, I don't need Billy Graham stuffing religion down my throat. And then with that, he turned on his heel and stormed off, heading for the practice team. His friend followed the angry pro to the practice team. The pro took out his driver and started to beat out balls in fury, and his neck was crimson, looked like steam was coming from his ears. A friend said nothing, sat on a bench and watched. And after a few minutes, the anger of the pro was spent, and he settled down, and his friend said rather quietly, hmm, was Billy a little rough on you out there? And the pro heaved an embarrassed sigh and said, Nah, he didn't even mention religion. I just had a bad round. Spro writes, Astonishing. Billy Graham had not said a word about God, not a word about Jesus. Nothing about religion. Yet the pro stormed away after the game, accusing Billy of trying to ram religion down his throat. How do you explain this? It's really not difficult. Billy Graham did not have to say a word. He did not have to give a single sideward glance to make the pro feel uncomfortable. For you see, Billy Graham was so identified with the Lord, so associated with the things of God, his very presence is enough to smother a man who flees when no one pursues. Jesus was on that boat with the disciples. They're out fishing. All of a sudden, it becomes very clear on that boat there was someone greater than they, than they present. Peter would cry out, Depart from me, I am a sinful man. And Jesus had not said a word about sin. What develops such thinking in one's mind? There is a consciousness here there is a consciousness that this sovereign one, this one who reigns, who has global majesty, is different. And this impacts our worship. For you see, out of verses 1 through 3 in your first stanza, that as we worship our Lord who reigns over all, you begin by noting with me the great I am here, the name describing our holy God. It's wrapped up in that opening word. The Lord. The Lord reigns. Now, once you and I have begun to grasp the significance of this, then we begin to better appreciate what comes next. Because once you've got the name understood in proper context, 
Then second of all, as you and I worship our Lord who reigns over all, note not only the name describing our holy king, but furthermore the justice loved by our holy king. You see it in verses 4 and again in verse 5. Now you and I are reintroduced to the fact that he is king. This is part of the royal pyramid. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have ex executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. And now, once again, you and I are introduced to this, to this truth. Holy is he. Now, to put this in proper perspective, bear in mind he is the king. At the beginning of verse 4, he is holy. At the end of verse 5, he is the holy king. In Isaiah chapter 6, you and I are told that in the year the king Isaiah died, there's a vacancy. How do you fill such a void? Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. He fills the vacancies of our lives. High and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. Two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, 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 triplicate, is the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, it's Yahweh, of hosts. But now with a statement pertaining to global majesty, the whole earth is full of his glory. What is the environmental reaction to that? The same as that pertaining to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because in Isaiah chapter 6 verse 4, we're told the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. Now this is extraordinary stuff. And this impacts the way in which we understand who God is and how God works. And if that isn't sufficient, you and I furthermore informed in Revelation chapter 4 that there is this angelic host that is around the throne, and lo and behold, these four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. Day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And John Tyson, out of New York City, writes, Quote, the angels have been locked 
in a room of majesty with God for thousands of years and they still haven't gotten past the word holy. Matt Redman. Love his writings, love his lyrics, love his music. He writes, one trend worth noting in our current worship lyrics is the tendency to only write and sing about the attributes of God that are directly helpful to us and perhaps neglect other aspects of his worth because they do not appear to be directly beneficial to us. It is perhaps holiness versus helpfulness. The challenge we face is not to only sing about God as our shepherd and fortress. We must also sing of him as the Holy One, marvel at those aspects of his nature and character that are worthy of his high praise, whether or not we are in the picture in any way. When our worship is such that the focus is upon God's holiness, the result is that we will be blessed with helpfulness. But when the worship is only upon what God can do for us, we get neither holiness nor helpfulness. You see, first things first. What comes in triplicate form is the question that we've got to be able to answer. Well, now in this three stanza approach on the holiness of God, you're in the second stanza. You and I are, know, are told now the king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. And I pondered that as I pulled off to the side on a... I-43 at one point when I was pondering a, a bumper sticker that spoke of climate justice and thought about the global majesty of God and the king in his might loves justice. He is the one who defines justice. Ah, see Sproul again, we may see non-justice in God, which is mercy, but we will never see injustice in God. And then again, God is never obligated to treat all people equally. Don't ever ask God for justice. You might get it. And I pondered that and thought about that as I look carefully at the horizontal aspects of justice as it relates to what God has described in the fact that he is the lover of justice that flows out of holiness. And the question is, when we talk about justice today, are we talking about holy justice? Now, when we begin to put things in proper perspective, out of verse 4, we can appreciate what happened in that court years ago when Judge Kaufman was presiding at the trial of the Russian spies, the Rosenbergs, who were charged with and convicted of treason against the U.S. In his summation at the end of the bitter trial, the lawyer for the Rosenbergs said animately, 
you honor what my clients ask for is justice. Judge Kaufman replied calmly, the court is given what you ask for, justice. What you really want is mercy, but that is something this court has no right to give. In other words, that court understood the difference between what I'll call lowercase authority and uppercase authority. Well, mercy is granted when we put faith and trust exclusively in the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord. And you say, Gary, I see justice. What about grace? I've used this analogy once or twice before. You baseball fans, and if you're a believer, you're a baseball fan, of course. You know... Years ago, there was an outfielder. His name was David Justice. At the same time in that era, there was a first baseman named Mark Grace. Justice played primarily, though not exclusively, with the Atlanta Braves. And Mark Grace is known for playing for the Cubs, among other teams. And what struck me was that Justice and Grace never played on the same team. They were always opposed to each other. What I want to be able to say to you, though, is that Justice and Grace are not opposed to one another. Holy Justice and Holy Grace need to be understood at a convergence point in who God is. Not separated from but brought together and the ultimate form of convergence is at the cross of Jesus Christ Justice was served when Christ died for our sins. Grace was dispensed as we put our faith and trust in the one who took justice in our place. Justice and grace find a meeting point, a convergence point, when you are looking at the cross of Jesus Christ. And so is it any wonder then that you and I are called to exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool because now for the second time in this threefold stanza approach, the cry is this, holy is he. And I can see Matt Redman now nodding his head as he's penning lyrics and because he would remind us the idea at this point in our worship is holiness, not helpfulness. And when you get the holiness factor right, helpfulness comes along the way and then meets us at our point of need. You're on to the third stanza, aren't you? Because now with this third stanza, what begins to unfold for us then is the movement from holy justice to holy grace. But thirdly, in 6 through 9, the prayers here are answered by our holy king. And so you're picking it up now with me, aren't you? And here in verse 6, we're informed Moses, Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Now, when you ponder Moses, then your mind goes back to that moment in time in Exodus 
where the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I'll turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. What did the Lord say? Hmm. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see God, God called out to him out of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And there's irony in that. And then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. In this statement, far exceeds anything Lincoln could offer at Gettysburg. The prayers answered by our holy king are such now that Moses and Aaron, who had access to God, Aaron on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, were among his priests, and Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. And you can read about that. For example, when, when Samuel had to plead with God uh, because of the idolatry of Israel and the fact they had turned away from the Lord and the Philistines had temporarily taken the Ark of the Covenant where the cherubim were inscribed. And we're told that when Samuel pled on behalf of the Israelites of First Samuel chapter 7, where in verse 9, the Lord answered him, Access is given where grace is dispensed. Justice in 4 and 5 find their convergence point with grace in verse 6 and 7 simply because what they share in common is holiness. So in verse 7, the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute he gave to them. O Lord, our God, you answered them. And so now, when you've got all this in proper perspective, watch out for answered prayers. If we simply view God as the great helper, we haven't started with first things. We start with the holiness of God in the very essence, triplicate form of who He is. O oh Lord, our God, You answered them. And then now notice here the convergence that other people would simply separate. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Well, they love the forgiveness side, but not necessarily the avenger side. But what both the forgiveness and the vengeance have in common is holiness. This is one and the same God, you see, who takes the justice, pins it upon that cross, and dispenses grace to those who realize that justice was addressed through Jesus Christ. What do you do with that? You're up to this, verses 8 and 9. Oh, Lord. Our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, an avenger of their wrongdoings. So out of all this, this impacts your worship. Matt Redman would be nodding his head at this moment. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his holy mountain 
He's taking us to Zion now. And now, holy, 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 triplicate form of stanzas, for the third time holiness is spoken of. For the Lord our God is holy. And I was pondering that where uh, in the last week where we devote second Monday nights for those uh, elders and leaders, deacons and so forth that desire to get together to explore some deeper aspects of theology. I, I was pondering the relationship between Isaiah's holy, 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 and Isaiah 6 in the throne room there, where Isaiah died and the Lord was seated on the throne, with the Revelation 4 throne room description of holy, 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 both what they share in common is throne rooms, where holiness in triplicate form is being professed and sung, and asked myself, but what's the difference? There's the similarity. But here it comes. In the first scenario, Isaiah, around 740 B.C., we're told of the seraphim who have six wings. They use them to cover their faces, cover their eyes. But in the second throne room worship service, in Revelation chapter 4, where holy, holy, holy is again being proclaimed around AD 92 or wherever, you again counter these creatures with six wings. But there's something different between first and second. In the Revelation account, no mention is made of them covering their eyes. Instead, we're told they, cover, they are covered with eyes. This is a seismic game changer. What has occurred? The one who died on the cross three days later was raised from the grave, seated at the right hand, and now the angelic realm is offering praise of holy, holy, holy to the one who has global majesty and reigns supreme. This is a game changer when it comes to worship, people. And this is our God. Let's stand together. And so, Father, we're praising you and thanking you. Keep us from diminishing our understanding of who you are. Keep us from diminishing aspects of worship that would bring glory and honor to you. You have chosen by your sovereign purposes to make the threefold description of the holy the defining nature of what you are all about, of which all their attributes are linked. When we get this right, and we understand the holiness, the helpfulness follows. Thank you, Father, for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. 
And thank you for revealing all this at the cross of Jesus Christ. We give you praise now in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.